Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 50. Congratulations, you've made it. We embarked on this journey in January, uh, exploring the life of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. And today, we've come to the final chapter in the book and the final message in this series. There's kind of a lot to cover, so I don't want to spend a lot of time setting it up. There are three scenes, so to speak, in the story in chapter 50, so we'll walk through those three scenes, and then I'd like to draw out three important good news realities from Joseph's story, which are all encapsulated here in chapter 50, but apply really to the whole, uh, the whole narrative. So uh, for our reflection and edification, and then we'll be done with, uh, with this story. So three scenes in Genesis 50. The first one is verses 1 through 14, where Jacob, actually at the very end of chapter 49, he died. It said he, was, he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And so what happens in the first 14 verses of Genesis 50 is that Joseph buries Jacob. So let's read these verses together, beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus, his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This scene is pretty straightforward, and there's a lot to cover in the other two scenes, so I don't want to spend very much time here. I want to point out just a couple of things. First of all, the author is very careful to point out how specifically the sons of Jacob followed his commands. They went to the place specifically that he had asked to be buried, where indeed his fathers and his wife had been buried, and they have carried this out with Pharaoh's blessing. And, uh, and so the sons of Jacob were careful to obey all that he had instructed them to do. 
And so we're reminded again of Jacob's request or demand, really, to be buried in the promised land. And that's an important factor, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. The only other observation I'll make on these 14 verses is that Jacob is treated with a remarkable amount of honor and dignity by the Egyptians. So as we've remarked before, Jacob comes into the land of Egypt with only a family of 70. So the people of Israel at that point were minuscule, and they're entering the greatest world power. And when Jacob met with Pharaoh that first time, rather than Pharaoh blessing Jacob, Jacob blessed Pharaoh, which was culturally interesting and strange that the lesser would be blessing the greater. But of course, in the eyes of God, the covenant people that, to whom, to, that belong to him is Jacob and his family, not Egypt. God's not impressed by the power and prestige and might of, of Egypt and of Pharaoh. He is on the side, as it were, of Jacob. And so Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And indeed, they've spent 17 years there now since uh, they began up until the time that Jacob dies. And, so, and they've been well treated. The family of Jacob has been well cared for, well provided for, first by the permission that Pharaoh gave them to settle in the land of Goshen, which was a, a rich and fertile land among the kingdom of Egypt. And they have, we've seen, they've been fruitful and multiplied. God has multiplied them during their time there. So they've been well treated by the Egyptians, clearly well regarded. And now that Jacob has died... Pharaoh not only gives Joseph permission to go and bury his father, he actually sends all of his officers and his household and all the elders of Egypt. And there's this great company. We're told multiple times it was a great company. There was a great lamentation. Like they are really seriously showing honor and respect for Jacob in his passing. And partly, I'm sure, out of Pharaoh's regard for Joseph, who has served him very well, over the years that he's been in that position. But nevertheless, it's worth recognizing that God's favor upon his people, in this case, is extending to this pagan nation where they live, extending their own kindness and favor and blessing in return to Jacob and his family. And so that's all the details we'll talk about in uh, the first scene. But, J- but Jacob has passed, and now Joseph and his sons have buried his body in the land of Canaan, in the field of Machpelah, just as he had, or in the cave in the field of Machpelah, just as he had uh, insisted upon. Now, in the second scene, which takes up verses 15 to 21, Joseph comforts his brothers, and not for the reason that you'd expect him to need to comfort them, and therefore not really in the way that you would expect him to comfort them. But let's find out what goes on here. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. The guilty conscience is still speaking. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him, yet another fulfillment of the dream from chapter 37, and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's an interesting bookend, by the way, the way that that ends, he spoke kindly to them. With earlier in chapter 37, when we're told that the, his brothers hated him because of his dreams, and it said they could not speak peacefully to him. So it's an interesting contrast and bookend to the story of J Joseph and his brothers. It began where they could not speak peacefully to him, and it ends with Joseph speaking kindly to them. So why do they need comfort? Why do the brothers come to Joseph? It's, it's not, as we might expect, because they're simply grieving. Like, we don't know what to do now that our father is dead. He always led the way and did so much, and we're so sad. Please help us. That's not what they come to Joseph with. What they begin to do is to worry. Maybe Joseph has only been tolerating us on behalf of our father because he knew that it would grieve our father for there to be further violence or treachery among us. And so perhaps now that our father is dead, there is nothing in the way, and Joseph may actually uh, get revenge on us, as he has maybe secretly planned for all these years. And so they scheme a little bit, and they send a messenger to Joseph. They don't have the guts to say this to his face, not yet. They send a messenger to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died, which we don't know this 100%, but if I had to guess, I'd say they made this up. Probably this is, you can't prove that he didn't say this because he's dead now. So maybe if he hears that our dad said he should go easy on us, then he'll take that seriously. So I think probably this didn't really happen, but whatever. He sends a messenger. Uh, they send a messenger to Joseph saying, your father made you uh, swear uh, to forgive the transgression of their brothers uh, because of the evil that they did against you. And when this message is spoken to Joseph, look what he does in verse 17. Joseph wept. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why? Why does Joseph cry in this moment? Is he hurt that they still don't trust him after all this time? Listen, you've been here for 17 years, and I have poured out blessing and favor and provision upon you. I have spoken clearly of forgiveness and reconciliation and how God has purposed all of these things. So after 17 years now of life together where this has been my posture toward you, you still don't trust my heart toward you? Maybe he's hurt. Maybe he's sat on their behalf because he's realizing even after those 17 years of blessing and favor that he's bestowed upon them, they are clearly still living under this guilt. They still can't receive good things from God and just say, thanks, God, that was kind. They have to wonder what's going on behind it. Joseph, I know you've treated us well for these 17 years, but probably the other shoe is going to drop. This is maybe you're just lulling us into a false sense of security so that we won't see it coming when you bring down the hammer of justice. So perhaps Joseph is sad on their behalf. 
wow, what a way to live. Maybe it's both. I wonder if God ever feels that way about our insecurity toward him. Do you ever approach God kind of cowering a little bit? Please don't be mad at me, God. Please don't strike me. Please be patient. And he's going, haven't you seen how I've blessed you? Haven't you seen how I've forgiven you? Don't you know that I love you? Maybe you can identify with that. Well, how does Joseph comfort his brothers? He doesn't get mad. I don't think. I suppose there could be some anger in his weeping. We're not sure. But what he expresses is not anger. What he expresses is, is comfort. How does he comfort them? Not, it wasn't a big deal. Don't worry about it. Water under the bridge. Like, he doesn't use any of those little cliches that minimize the evil that they did to him. No, he, he comforts them with theology. Well, that strikes you as odd. Maybe you think of theology as sort of impersonal and impractical. But here are Joseph's brothers afraid that something terrible is going to happen to them and cowering before their brother, who's in charge, in a position of authority where he can do whatever he wants and not get in trouble, remember. And Joseph decides what you need is some theology. What you need is a reminder about who God is and how he operates. Because that's how he comforts them. Look at verse 20. Actually, beginning in verse 19, he says, Don't fear, for am I in the place of God? So first of all, I'm just a guy. I'm not God. If I were to act as judge and jury and executioner for you, I'd be acting like I'm God, and I'm not. So the first thing he does is to humble himself. The way that Tim Keller says it is that he avoids God's chair, not placing myself in God's seat as the one who can be the arbiter of justice. I'm not God. I'm not in the place of God. And as for you, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good so that many would be preserved alive. As you are today. <laughs> Just a reminder, you're still alive. And isn't that an expression of God's mercy toward you? So the, the word here that Joseph gives to his brothers is sort of a theological summary over the whole saga. These last 22 plus 17, whatever that is, years that he was in slavery, and then in prison, and then in Egypt, and then during famine, and then the family of Jacob has come and moved there, and they've lived there together these 17 years. This whole thing falls under the umbrella of God's providential care, God's sovereign rule over the world, even as it relates to their particular choices and actions. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. There's two realities that Joseph sees here in this phrase. Number one, he sees that God is sovereign over human evil. When Joseph's brothers attacked him and sold him as a slave, God was not surprised or thrown off. Well, I had this plan A course for Joseph, and now the brothers sinned against him, and I'm going to have to figure something out. God is not like the map on your phone where when you make a wrong turn, it has to recalculate the route. 
God doesn't recalculate. God intended the route to go through the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers, or whatever the sinful action is that you've been the recipient of or the victim of. God is not trying to figure out a new path. Because notice, please, he doesn't say, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. He says God meant it for good, which means that God had a specific, intentional, redeeming purpose in the sinful decisions and actions of Joseph's brothers. That's a little bit boggling to the mind, but nevertheless, that is what Joseph sees and declares. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So God is sovereign even over human evil. And the second thing he sees is not just the fact that the bare sort of raw data that God sovereignly works in and through human sin, but that God redeems the suffering of his people. Including suffering that comes as a result of sinful human actions. We've seen over and over how God has redeemed the suffering of Joseph. Joseph went through horrible, hard things. He was hated and rejected by his brothers and attacked violently. He was sold as a slave and spent years in servitude. He was falsely accused of a crime he did not commit and spent years in prison. Then when there was a glimmer of hope of getting out of prison, he was forgotten by the cupbearer who could have told Pharaoh about this Hebrew that interprets dreams. And then finally he's out of prison and rises to a position of authority in Egypt. But all this while he is separated from his beloved father and his community and the land of promise. He has been through a lot, but we've seen very clearly over and over what God is doing. Not just to work around all of that, but in that. And to use those particular situations and actions. So God is sovereign over human evil and God redeems the suffering of his people. There is no, we sang this earlier, my pain will not be wasted. The suffering of God's people is never in vain. God is not blind to it. He's not indifferent to it. He will take that pain and use it for your formation, for your good, and ultimately for his glory and the achieving of his purposes. Tim Keller sort of summarizes this theological reality with the encouragement, you can't muck up your life. If you're worried that you're going to make the wrong choice and be forever off on some plan B consolation version of what God has for you, Genesis 50, 20 should become a theme for you. You can't mess this up. You can't make enough goofy decisions that God is like, I don't even know what to do with you anymore, Carlson. How did you get over there? He knows, and he's planning it. And even when I make what might be an unwise decision, or dare I say, a sinful decision, God's not recalculating. God's not thrown off. All of that is a part of his sovereign purpose for my life and for your life. You can't muck up your life. What comfort and security we might find in the knowledge that we are secure in God's hand. We are under his meticulous providential guidance all along the way, no matter what it looks like to us. 
And so he promises to provide for his brothers. Do not fear. He says this twice, by the way. Do not fear. In verse 21, he says, I will provide for you and your little ones. You don't need to worry. Things are not changing now that our father is out of the picture. I will provide for you. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph comforts his brothers. Then the final scene in this chapter, and indeed in the book of Genesis, is verses 22 through 26, where Joseph dies in faith. Let's look at verses 22 through 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 120 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. We're not sure if that means three generations after Ephraim or three generations including Ephraim. It's a little bit unclear. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Notice the difference in the resting place, at least immediately, between Jacob and Joseph. Jacob insisted that his body be buried in the land of Canaan, at the cave at, at Machpelah. And so they embalmed him just to let his body last long enough to get him there, right? And Joseph, he has the same thing in his mind. He's just as aware as Jacob was that this is not the land of promise and that the land of promise is back in Canaan. But what he asks is a little bit different. He doesn't say, go and bury me right now in the land of Canaan. What he says is, when God visits you and brings you up from this land, carry me with you and then bury me. And remember, Jacob had promised Joseph a particular plot of land in the land of Canaan that he could be buried in there. So Joseph has the same desire, the same awareness, the same confidence in what God has promised, but he takes a little bit different route. He doesn't immediately want to be buried in the land of promise. He wants to be there where his people are in the land of Egypt until they're no longer there, and when the people leave, bring me with you, and then take me to the promised land. And so Joseph assures his brothers here, reminding them of the promises of God over these generations, that he will visit them, he will bring them up from Egypt, and return them to the promised land. Joseph has this very forward-looking faith. Now, a little bit of context that may be in his mind, back in Genesis 15, God had told Abraham that his descendants would be sojourners in a land that was not theirs, and that they would be servants there, and that they would be afflicted for 400 years in this way. God said all of that to Abraham back in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. He didn't give him details about when that would start or where it would be, 
But Abraham knew and surely had passed along to his sons and grandsons that this is a part of the story that God was writing for their descendants, that they would, uh, that they would be in bondage in a foreign place for some 400 years. And, by the way, that God would bring judgment on that nation and that Abraham's descendants would come out with great possessions. That's all back in Genesis chapter 15. And I'm guessing that Joseph remembers those words and remembers those promises that God had made to Abraham. And so perhaps he's able to see that his family is now poised to fulfill that bittersweet prophecy. He has seen God's presence and provision in bringing them to the land of Egypt and settling them in the land of Goshen and making them fruitful and multiplying them so that they are prosperous in the land. But he's remembering there's a foreign land that the people of Abraham's family are going to be in, in slavery for 400 years. This looks like it might be it. I assume Joseph is aware of that. And so when he says, God will visit you and will bring you up, he is probably thinking 400 or so years down the road, when God fulfills that promise to bring you out of the land of your bondage and carry you back to the promised land, don't forget about me. Take my bones with you when you go and bury me in the promised land. Moses will carry that out. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 13. When, they, when the people of Israel do eventually leave Egypt in the Exodus, Moses carries Joseph's bones with him when the people leave. And then eventually, in Joshua chapter 24, Joseph's bones are buried at Shechem. So, it's interesting to read even multiple books, multiple generations down the way how God's promises were fulfilled, and how Joseph, in this moment, at the moment of his death, at the end of Genesis 50, has in mind that moment, 400 or so years from now, when God will make good on his promise. This is why the author of Hebrews, in chapter 11, verse 23, is able to attribute such faith to Joseph in saying this. In Hebrews eleven twenty three, 23, it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. If you're just reading through Hebrews 11 and you don't have all of this context in your mind, you might go, what's the big deal about him mentioning the exodus? This is it. They're not even, they're not even in slavery yet. There's 400 years yet to pass where the people would be in bondage in Egypt. And it's after that where God had made this promise that he's going to visit them and bring them up from Egypt and carry them back to the promised land. And that's what Joseph has his eyes on. So his dying request is, don't forget, God will visit you. God will save you. And when he does, carry me with you so that I will rest in the land that God promised our people. That is remarkable faith and confidence in the Lord's promises. Remember we talked a couple of weeks ago, the fuel of faith is the promises of God. Joseph has those promises very firmly fixed in his mind, and they're at the forefront when he comes to die. And so the brothers swear that they'll do it. So Joseph died there 
being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so the scene, the stage, as it were, is set for the next chapter of Israel's story in the book of Exodus. You wouldn't expect, having begun the book of Genesis and seen these promises to Abraham that he'd make him a great nation and he was going to bless him and bless all the nations of the world through him, you wouldn't expect the book of Genesis to end with Israel's most prominent leader buried in a coffin in Egypt. That is a narrative dissonance that's intentional, setting up a tension that the book of Exodus will then pick up, but we don't get to go there today. So that's the story. That's the story of Joseph and his brothers and God's promises and provisions. Three good news realities in Joseph's story. We've already talked some about it, one of these, but we're going to dig a little deeper. Three good news realities in Joseph's story. Number one, God's providence over human evil. And really, over all things, if you wanted to expand that. God's providence over all things, including human evil. The Westminster Confession, in the chapter of God's eternal decree, begins this way. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Did they mean it to be that broad? Yes. God freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Was this a part of God's will? Well, did it happen? There's a sense in which it is that simple. God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, including acts of human evil, which cause great suffering. It goes on to say that he has done this, he has ordained all of these things, decreed all of these things without becoming the author of sin and without in any way doing violence to the will of the creature. There's certainly mystery in how all of these things fit together and our minds are not quite big enough to grasp it all perfectly. Nevertheless, this is what the scriptures over and over teach and affirm, and so we must hold it and affirm it. God has decreed freely and unchangeably whatsoever comes to pass, and yet he's not guilty of sin, he's not the author of sin, and he hasn't done violence to the will of human beings. We are moral agents with the ability to make choices, and we are responsible for our choices. R.C. Sproul says, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. If God doesn't have that kind of control over the events that happen in his universe, how could we possibly think he can bring about the purposes that are in his heart to bring about? Stuff could happen that he doesn't foresee. Something could come into my life that he didn't prepare for, and suddenly I'm off the map. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That is the resting place of the Christian. 
That is the resting place of the unsure, insecure person in the world, bumping into obstacles, being sinned against and sinning against others, unforeseen things coming into his life. What is going on? Well, I'm not sure, but I know that it came in one way or another from the hand of my father, and I know that my father loves me, and so it must be for my good. So our trust in God's promises, our hope in his redemption swings upon the hinge of God's meticulous providence over his creation, including the choices of his creatures, which of course includes acts of sin and evil. God is providentially governing all of this. The Joseph story demonstrates poignantly that God redeems even the most broken and painful parts of our stories. I'm sure there are people in this room that could recount actions done against them, sins and violence and traumas that you can't make sense of, that seem to you completely capricious, arbitrary, wasted. But even that, God is redeeming. Even that, God is using for your good and his glory. And when you're sitting in that place where you can't see it and it doesn't make sense, you rest by faith on the promises of God that this is what he's doing. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. He has redemptive purposes in human acts of evil without himself being guilty of evil. And if all of that sounds a little strange or hard to buy, and you're like, I'm not sure about that, I would point you to the greatest incident where this is plainly seen, namely the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In one way, the greatest act of evil to ever be perpetrated by any human being upon another. The innocent, sinless, perfect, righteous Son of God, mocked, accused, condemned, nailed to a cross, tortured, and executed as a criminal. You can't name a sin that's worse than that. And yet from it, through it, I should say, not recalculating, through it, the greatest act of human evil ever perpetrated, God brings the greatest redemption that could ever be. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, in part, he says a whole lot more than this. Excuse me, I'm having a hard time getting there. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Wait a minute, which of those is true? Was Jesus killed by lawless men? That is, they were breaking God's law. They didn't have any concern about whether God's law was honored. They sinfully, wickedly crucified Jesus of Nazareth. Was it that, or was it that God delivered him up by his definite plan and foreknowledge? Yes, 
It's both. It was carried out by the hands of wicked men, by their own free choices, and yet all of that was just carrying out the plan and purpose of God to place his wrath against human sin upon his son so that he might look at us and count us free. All of that is in the decrees of God. God's not guilty of the sin that was committed by the lawless men who crucified him, but he nevertheless overruled them, oversaw them, and through them brought about the redemption of sinners through the death of Jesus on the cross. And so we can be confident that God is at work in the actions and decisions of human beings to bring about his saving purposes. God's providence over all things, including human evil, is a good news reality that shines brightly from the pages of Joseph's story. Number two, good news reality number two, God's promises for our future blessing. God has promised Israel the land of Canaan, and so Jacob and Joseph both know they will return there. And we are still awaiting the final fulfillment of these promises. He will bring us up from this land of suffering, brokenness, sorrow, and death into a new heaven and earth where peace and righteousness reign and will dwell with him there forever. This is a promise God has made to his people that has yet to be fulfilled. And so we wait in hope, in confidence, just as Joseph and Jacob waited in confidence that in that time, in that temporal way, God would fulfill the promises to Israel. We are still waiting for these promises to be fulfilled. Isaiah 65, verse 17, God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5, we read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and earth shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. This is the promise of God to his people, and we await it right now. We're still waiting. So we have the good news reality that God has promised our future blessing. And we should live in light of that promise, with confidence in that promise. Just as Jacob and Joseph had confident faith in God's promises to establish their people in the land of Canaan, we also can trust in God's promises to right every wrong, to restore what's lost and broken, and to finally bring us into our eternal home with him. God's promises for our future blessing. And number three, good news reality number three, this is the last one, God's presence in our sorrow. God's presence in our sorrow. We have seen Joseph weep seven times throughout this story, and as we've gone along, I've pointed them out to you. Oh, by the way, this is the third time, this is the fourth time, this is the fifth time that Joseph weeped. Two of them actually happened in this chapter. In Genesis 42, 24, he wept when he overheard his brothers speaking of their guilt. In chapter 43, he wept when he saw Benjamin for the first time. In chapter 45, he wept when he first reveals his identity to his brothers. Later in that chapter, he wept when they embrace each other and he reassures them. In chapter 46, he cries when he reunites with his father after 22 years. 
At the beginning of chapter 50, he weeps when his father Jacob dies. And then in chapter 50, verse 17, when his brothers plead for mercy after their father's death, he weeps again. Seven times we see Joseph weep. Why bring that up? Why point that out? Why has he been careful to include that? Two important realities that Joseph's tears point us toward. Number one, life in a fallen world is painful. Life in a fallen world is painful. Even with great theology about God's redeeming providence and even with a clear understanding of God's promises for our blessing, when we are sinned against and when we experience the brokenness of the world, it hurts. We feel real sorrow. And that's okay. Joseph is not stoic, rising above all of the circumstances of his life. I know that God has a purpose, and so I'm not even affected by all of this. That's not how Joseph engages with the events and experiences of his life, and that's not how God expects us to engage with the experiences that we have. In a way, Joseph's tears give us permission to be human, to feel the weight of our experiences in this world and not assume that if I'm having a hard time with this, it must mean that I don't trust God. That's not true. Psalm 56, 8 tells us that you have kept, of God, you have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He sees, he knows, he understands. Don't be afraid of your own grief. Life in a fallen world is painful, and Joseph's tears remind us of that. Number two, perhaps more importantly, we have a friend who joins us in our tears. Joseph's tears give us a glimpse of a messianic hope, a, a glimpse of God's Messiah who would live among his people and share in their tears. Prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is a description of the Lord Jesus. He didn't float through life with a glib smile on his face. He suffered. He was rejected and despised. He knew what it is to grieve. And in John chapter 11, we see this weeping Messiah standing outside the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, grieving with them. When he comes to the tomb of Lazarus, his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, and the friends that have gathered are, are crying and Jesus joins them, and the shortest verse in all the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, is simply this. Jesus wept. Jesus knows the hurt of life in a fallen world. Hebrews 4, 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what can we do as a result? It says the very next thing, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Friend, take heart. Your God is with you in your sorrows. He keeps count of your tears, and he's there to provide you with strength for today and hope for tomorrow. 
I've called this series Rising, and I hope by now you can see why. Just in the narrative, we see Joseph rising from the pit, from the slaves' chains, and from the dungeon to a place of royal authority and honor. We see the people of Israel rising from poverty and starvation to blessing and prosperity in the land of Goshen. We see the family of Abraham rising from hatred, violence, and dysfunction to forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace. And in all this, we see echoes of Christ himself, who went down in humility, taking on human nature and form, lowering himself to become a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. He was the celebrated, cherished son of the Father who was rejected by his brothers, despised by his own people, and ultimately cast out in shame and condemnation, executed outside the city on a criminal's cross. But his body was not left to decay in the grave. As we say in the Nicene Creed, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then Philippians 2, 9 and 10 says, Therefore, because of his humility and his suffering and now his resurrection, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has risen. For both Joseph and Jesus, suffering and death were not the end, but the gateway into everlasting life and joy in God's presence. And through faith in Christ, that's your story too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and power. Thank you for your meticulous guidance of all the affairs of men and all of the happenings in this world. Give us great faith. Give us greater confidence in your wise and loving care. Knowing that no matter what comes into our lives, we face it as something that has been ordained by the good, loving hand of our Father. And knowing that we face it with a suffering Savior who sits with us in our grief. And knowing that we face it with the promise of a new heaven and a new earth and an eternity in your presence on the other side of it. Give us hearts of faith to trust you. In Christ's name we pray.